Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available... On digital, Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. From the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library here in the wilds of Connecticut, this is Obscure Season 2, Frankenstein. I am your friend, your host, your ear lover, your literary mansplainer-in-chief, your soon-to-be Georgianologist, Michael Ian Black. I watched a Frankensteinian movie two nights ago, a sci-fi thingamajiggy bob called The Titan, starring, uh, gee, I do not know who, but, you know, some actors. And it was okay. It's about a group of earthlings, really about one earthling, who is transformed through the power of science to be able to inhabit Saturn's moon of Titan, because the Earth has been so degraded that humanity is looking for a new home. It wasn't great, like I said, but it was Frankensteinian because the whole premise is they're using science to make this man into something of an ubermensch, a superman. And his wife is in on it, and the scientist is in on it, the kids are in on it, everybody's all, everybody's all in on this guy and his friends going to save humanity and uh, through the power of science. But, you know, there are unforeseen consequences as these things often go. Unforeseen consequences are always the order of the day when we launch into a new season of Obscure. We are most of the way through our second season, I, I think. But unforeseen consequences rear their head. Again, the latest in my life, as you know, is COVID leading to my move to sunny Savannah. Um, I'm dismantling the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library today. One of the things that we have agreed 
my dear wife Martha and I, is that we are going to do as little work as possible in terms of packing up the house. Uh, we, the difference in moving costs between the movers packing the house and us moving packing up the house wasn't as great as I thought it would be, so we're going to have them do it. But even with the minimum amount of work to pack, to, you know, just sort through things, it is a lot of work. So we've been spending the last week or so organizing. Um, Martha is holding a tag sale, a garage sale, next week end, next weekend, this coming weekend. And I was very clear with her from the very beginning that I wanted no part of it. You may think, Michael, why why would you not be supportive of making money when all you like to do is scheme to make money? And the answer is uh, is uh, is deep rooted with me. My mother had and her partner had a stationery store when I was a teenager. They had quit their jobs at the Social Security Administration, which they hated, and decided to open their own store. Neither of them had any business experience, neither of them had much capital to invest, but the store sort of limped along for, let's say, two to three years, and then it kind of uh, shuttered. When it shuttered, we had a lot of excess inventory, things that went unsold from the store, and my mother and her partner, every weekend, would hold yard sale, same same thing as a, a tag sale or garage sale. Uh, out of the backyard of our home, modest though the yard was, modest though the home was, and it was tons of bric-a-brac and junk every weekend, all the same junk. And the neighbors complained because we weren't supposed to be holding, basically operating a business out of our backyard. I found the whole thing mortifying, and, uh, and now I can no longer hold tag sales. I, I'm, I'm incapable of that. I said, I'm not doing that. And as luck would have it, I'm going to be performing this coming weekend in Albany, New York. So I won't be able to be there anyway. But the thought of like haggling with neighbors over, you know, a picture frame or something just fills me with such dread that I can hardly express it. Um, is my dread existential like that of Victor Frankenstein? No, of course not. My creations, uh, whatever I have assembled in my own house and home, my hearth are not nearly as abominable as Victor Frankenstein's, though some of them, as I go through my things, are indeed abominable. I'm thinking in particular of my high school journals. But they don't threaten to kill me the way... Big Buddy has threatened to kill everything and everyone that Victor Frankenstein holds dear. His father has appeared to him to help him recover his health after Victor was accused of the murder of poor Henry Clerval. And the appearance of his father has indeed helped him along. And so we pick up the story here, Volume 3, Chapter 4 of Frankenstein. He says, I gradually recovered my health. Now, this is uh, after the father came. And now I continue. As my sickness quitted me, I was absorbed by a gloomy and black melancholy that nothing could dissipate. Oh, come on, man. The whole book has been you in a gloomy and black melancholy. 
That's your whole thing. That's your vibe. You're the guy that's in a gloomy and black melancholy, as is probably most of uh, most of humanity most of the time, right? Probably 80% of the listeners to this podcast find themselves in a gloomy and black melancholy at least some of the time, right? I mean, it's no big deal, and it's not surprising to hear it from you, and it's not a particularly interesting character development. You have always been that way. You are an emo kid. We've talked about this before. I understand that this is the first sci-fi book. It's also the first emo book. The image of Clerval was forever before me, ghastly and murdered. More than once, the agitation into which these reflections threw me made my friends dread a dangerous relapse. Alas, what did, why did they preserve so miserable and detested a life? It was surely that I might fill my destiny, which is now drawing to a close. Soon, Oh, very soon will death extinguish these throbbings and relieve me from the mighty weight of anguish that bears me to the dust. And in executing the award of justice, I shall also sink to rest. Then the appearance of death was distant, although the wish was ever present to my thoughts. And I often sat for hours motionless and speechless, speechless, wishing for some mighty revolution that might bury me and my destroyer in its ruins. I was watching a clip of Tom Hiddleston. That's his name, right? The guy who plays Loki. And I've seen this premise before on talk shows where somebody who sounds nice, you know, they've got a nice voice. Um, they'll just have them read something kind of uh, banal to prove that they have a great voice and that they're entertaining just by virtue of their vocal prowess. And so they had Tom Hiddleston reading mathematical equations, Einstein's general theory of relativity and the Pythagorean theory. E equals mc squared. The Pythagorean equation is a squared plus b squared equals c squared. He indeed did sound lovely reading them, but it doesn't seem, it hardly seems fair, does it? That, you know, the guy's good looking, the guy's talented, he also has a lovely voice. You're like, you know, pick one of three, you get one of three or something. It, at least have him be like a, a Rudolph Valentino, you know, like a screechy crow voice. Rudolph Valentino, that's his name, right? Biggest movie star in the world, silent film era. And then, you know, talkies came and he couldn't speak worth a damn. I'm I'm self-conscious now because I'm thinking about my own voice, reading the Pythagorean theorem on Jimmy Kimmel or whatever the hell it is, and understanding, realizing that it would not be particularly entertaining to anybody. A squared plus B squared equals C squared. That's not entertaining. God damn it. Why? why? Does anybody else just sit in your home? and ponder why you're not better at things? It's all I do. Why am I not better at things? Seems I should be better at some things. If anything, my aptitude in all things seems to be dissipating. I don't know. The season of the assizes approached. A-S-S-I-Z-E-S. Assizes, assizes, and there's no footnote or anything, so I gotta look up. I gotta crank up the old research machine. Let me just see... We put water in it this weekend so it doesn't overheat. 
I think we did. And so I will look up ass sizes. <laughs> ass sizes. So funny. Uh, judicial inquest. An action to be decided by such an inquest. So a trial, I guess. Uh, oh, it's a. Uh, oh, so so I think. Um, okay, so it's a it's a trial session held periodically in specific locations in England, usually by a judge of a superior court. So I guess maybe they didn't have enough judges or something, and so they would travel around, and then there'd be a season of them, you know, because you, you you couldn't do it all year round. So, you know, it's, it's coming. The trial's coming. I'd already been three months in prison, and although I was still weak and in continual danger of a relapse, I was obliged to travel nearly a hundred miles to the county town where the court was held. Mr. Kerwin charged himself with every care of collecting witnesses and arranging my defense. I was spared the disgrace of appearing publicly as a criminal, as the case was not brought before the court that decides on life and death. Well, why wouldn't it? Why wouldn't it be a life and death case? Uh, Let's see. The grand jury rejected the bill on its being proved that I was on the Orkney Islands at the hour the body of my friend was found. And a fortnight after my, my removal, I was liberated from prison. That's it? That's the whole thing? Why did we just spend pages and pages and pages on this bullshit? This is, I mean, this is what's annoying about this book. It's all ramp up. It's all ramp up to the thingamajig. And then anticlimax. He's about to be on trial for his life for murder. And then she's like, well, we figured it out. He wasn't there at the time. So they let him go. I mean, Mary, that's not good storytelling, Mary. Get out your red pencil. And edit a little. Lazy Mary. Lazy writing is what it is. So a fortnight after my removal, I was liberated from prison. Okay, great, fine. I don't know why we wasted all this time then. My father was enraptured on finding me freed from the vexations of a criminal charge that I was again allowed to breathe the fresh atmosphere and permitted to return to my native country. I did not participate in these feelings, for to me, the walls of a dungeon or a palace were alike hateful. Yeah, emo kid. The cup of life was poisoned forever. And although the sun shone upon me, as upon the happy and gay of heart, I saw around me nothing but a dense and frightful darkness, penetrated by no light but the glimmer of two eyes that glared upon me. Yeah. Big Buddy's eyes. I mean, look, I know I do a lot a lot of um important literary analysis on this podcast, but I wanted to emphasize to all of you that the two eyes that glared upon him in his imagination were in fact Big Buddy's eyes. Yeah, if that wasn't clear, um I'm peeling back the text. You know, I'm doing textual analysis here and it's very, very impressive. Sometimes they were the expressive eyes of Henry. Oh, so I was wrong. I mean, after making my dumb joke, I was immediately slapped in the face by Mary Shelley, who's clearly still mad at me for telling her that it was bad writing. Um, because they're not always the big buddy. Sometimes they're Henry. Sometimes they were the expressive eyes of Henry languishing in death the dark orbs nearly covered by the lids and the long black lashes that fringed them. Sometimes it was the watery, clouded eyes of the monster, 
as I first saw them in my chamber at Ingolstadt. Um, I'm feeling a little parched. I'm going to take a moment. Um, It's gloomy here in the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library, and I wonder if that's affecting my alertness and the tone of this episode. If I'm a little bit subdued, if I am a little bit black and melancholy in my presentation, uh, let us blame the weather, shall we not? And I will try to pick up my act when we return on Obscure. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. I'm back. I'm cleansed. I'm parched. Um, Still tired, you know, still a little tired. Even low these 30 seconds that have passed, I am still a bit tired. So, uh, you know, let's keep going. We'll see. My father tried to awaken in me the feelings of affection. So, you know, his father's trying to slap him around and say, wake up, boy, wake up. You know, you got good things in your life. I'm trying to slap myself around and say, wake up, wake up. You've got a podcast to finish. He talked of Geneva, which I should soon visit, of Elizabeth and Ernest. But these words only drew deep groans from me. Sometimes, indeed, I felt a wish for happiness and thought with melancholy delight of my beloved cousins or, oh, my beloved cousin, excuse me, or longed with a devouring maladie du pays which I think, I'm not even going to look it up, but I think that's homesickness, Uh, to see once more the blue lake and rapid Rhone that had been so dear to me in early childhood. But my general state of feeling was a torpor, we know, in which a prison was as welcome a residence as the divinest scene in nature, we know. And these fits were seldom interrupted but by paroxysms of anguish and despair. We know, Victor, we're just in a rut here of you feeling sorry for yourself. It does not make a good read. People feeling sorry for themselves, people playing the victim does not make for a good read. It just doesn't. It doesn't make for a good life either. 
but I don't want to, but nor do I want to read about it. I mean, at least put some jokes in for God's sake. At these moments, I often endeavored to put an end to the existence I loathe. Then do it. Fucking find a rope and fucking find a tree, dude. I mean, enough. And it, and it required unceasing attendance and vigilance to restrain me from committing some dreadful act of violence. Okay. Okay. Fine. Yet one duty remained to me. Okay. Then this is, this is what we need. You know, we need your sense of obligation here. We need the hero's journey to continue. We need you to be propelled forward. I've said it before. This is why I don't like Hamlet. Same shit. The recollection of which finally triumphed over my selfish despair. It was necessary that I should return without delay to Geneva, there to watch over the lives of those I so fondly loved, and to lie in wait for the murderer, that if any chance led me to the place of his concealment, or if he dared again to blast me by his presence, I might, with unfailing aim, put an end to the existence of the monstrous image which I had endured with the mockery of a soul still more monstrous. Okay, I got to go back because I'm not sure I fully understand that. I might, with unfailing aim, put an end to the existence of the monstrous image, right, which I had endued. Oh, endued. That's why. That's where I screwed up. I said endured. I had endued with the mockery of a soul still more monstrous. So he's saying, yeah, I made an ugly thing, but the soul is even uglier than the thing. The dude's ugly, but you got to look at his soul, bro. Bro, his soul, really ugly, bro. You got to check that shit out. My father still desired to delay our departure, fearful that I could not sustain the fatigues of a journey, for I was a shattered wreck, the shadow of a human being. My strength was gone. I was a mere skeleton, and fever night and day preyed upon my wasted frame. Still, as I urged our leaving Ireland with such inquietude and impatience, my father thought it best to yield. We took our passage on board a vessel bound for Havre de Grasse and sailed with a fair wind from the Irish shores. It was midnight. I lay on the deck looking at the stars and listening to the dashing of the waves. I hailed the darkness that shut Ireland from my sight, and my pulse beat with a feverish joy when I reflected that I should soon see Geneva. The past appeared to me in the light of a frightful dream, yet the vessel in which I was, the wind that blew me from the detested shore of Ireland and the sea which surrounded me, told me too forcibly that I was deceived by no vision, and that Clerval, my friend and dearest companion, had fallen a victim to me and the monster of my creation. I repassed in my memory my whole life, my quiet happiness while residing with my family in Geneva, the death of my mother, and my departure for Ingolstadt. I remembered shuddering the mad enthusiasm that hurried me on to the creation of my hideous enemy, and I called to mind the night in which he first lived. I was unable to pursue the train of thought, 
a thousand feelings pressed upon me, and I wept bitterly. I don't know if you guys know anything about the, uh, the near-death experience. experience. You know, in addition to the UFOs that I have been, uh, you know, paying some time uh, uh, attention to. I think I've talked about how I also have been paying to attention to near-death experiences. And the overlap between the two is striking. And the overlap between the two of uh, those two things and at, at the very least this moment of Victor Frankenstein's life also striking as he's conducting a life review, a common feature of the near-death experience. He finds himself in an otherworldly place lying on his back in the sea, surrounded by an impenetrable darkness, and images of his life to that point flash before him. And one of the interesting components of the near-death experience, that's something I didn't know till I was doing a little more research into it, is that in the life review, which is that moment when your life flashes before your eyes and you see everything you have ever done, one of the startling claims made by people who have done this, gone through this, is that you simultaneously see the events of your life through your own eyes, right? But then, or concurrent with that, you also see and experience those same events through the eyes of the person or people with whom you were interacting. And so you feel what they felt in your moments with them. And that is, um, you know, that sounds horrible. When, I mean, when I think about all the horrible things that I've said and done over the years, all the interactions I've had with people who probably thought to themselves, hey, that guy's a jerk, or that guy hurt me, or whatever. It's hard, it's e- much, much easier to remember the times when one has caused pain, or at least, if not the specific instances, at least that familiar kind of creeping dread that one has, and when I say one, I mean me, of all the people you may have offended in your life in one manner or another. And it seems like that must be as uh, the most painful part of death. The death experience is having to go through a life review. My God. I mean, just the sheer number of times I've masturbated and I'd have to look at that. Come on. Doesn't seem fair, does it? It doesn't seem fair, Mary. Um, On the other hand, they say, those experiencers, that the beings, people, guides, whatever you want, whatever you want to call them, who uh, go through this with you or sort of are guiding you through this are very nice about it. You know, they're very empathetic. They're not being they're not being judgy about it. They're like, yeah, Michael, you really jerked off a lot in this lifetime. But they're not being, you know, they're not being like you shouldn't have done that. They're just they're, they're, they're observing. You know, it's dispassionate. And then I guess my soul would be like, yeah, I really did. Huh. What do you think about that? And I'm not saying, look, I, 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 I this got onto a tangent that I didn't want to get onto. I don't think I masturbate any more than anybody else. I just want to clarify that. But yeah, Victor Frankenstein going through his own little life review right there. And I imagine, you know, it's got to be incredibly painful for him. So painful that he cannot continue the train of thought. He's unable to pursue it. He weeps bitterly, bitter, bitter tears. Ever since my recovery from the fever, I had been in the custom of taking every night a small quantity of laudanum. Oh, where do you get that? And can I have some? 
It's nice. Um, there's something really nice about the 19th, 18th, 17th centuries, wherever, where, you know, they have opiates and they're like, yeah, just take opiates. It's fine. You know, you got whole opium dens back then. Just people kind of lounging out, smoking dope, chilled, people coming around, bringing them tea and stuff. Sounds great. It sounds great. It, you know, I could absolutely see myself spending, I don't know, a month in an opium den. Maybe not a month, maybe two weeks, you know, as a kind of getaway. Just smoking dope and drinking tea. It sounds okay to me. Um, So he's taken dope. For it was by means of this drug only that I was enabled to gain the rest necessary for the preservation of life. Nobody ever talks about how good opiates are for you. Never. Nobody ever says, you know what, opium, yeah, it's got its problem, but it's also pretty good for you. I don't know why they don't say that. Oppressed by the recollection of my various misfortunes, I now swallowed double my usual quantity and soon slept profoundly. But sleep did not afford me respite from thought and misery. My dreams presented a thousand objects that scared me. Towards morning, I was possessed by a kind of nightmare. I felt the fiend's grasp in my neck and could not free myself from it. Groans and cries rang in my ears. My father, who was watching over me, perceiving my restlessness, awoke me. The dashing waves were around, the cloudy sky above. The fiend was not here. A sense of security, a feeling that a truce was established between the present hour and the irresistible disastrous future imparted to me a kind of calm forgetfulness of which the human mind is by its structure peculiarly susceptible. End of chapter four. Uh, well, I don't know if it's, the, if it's the human mind that is peculiarly susceptible to that, or it's just the dope talking. But I will say this, getting back to the Titan for a moment, one of the, the, the premise of the Titan is that, and as I said, Earth has become so degraded, degraded that people, you know, there's there's like a line in the beginning of the movie where it's basically just like a narrator or a voiceover or something saying, you know, basically in ten years, fifteen year, in ten or fifteen years, half of humanity will have starved to death, right? Certain cities are becoming inhabitable because of the environmental disaster we have wrought, um, and. This is common knowledge in the world of the film. Everybody's going to die, right? But the beginning of the film is all about this family, the guy who's going to go to Titan and his wife and his kid, and they're showing up on this new, on this military base where he's going to undergo training and do the scientific experiments and everything. And they're all kind of acting like everything's fine, you know? Like they understand, like the earth is going to be uninhabitable in a couple decades, but for the moment, the kid's still going to school. You know, they're having play dates. They're getting together and drinking wine at night with the other astronauts. And it struck me that that actually is probably the way it would go. I mean, it's the way it is going, right? I mean, we don't have an end date. We don't know. It's going to be 15 years before the Earth becomes uninhabitable. It's probably more like 150 or something if something doesn't, if nothing changes. But we just sort of bumble through our lives, right? We just sort of put on blinders. We ourselves, those of us not 
in the Titan have a kind of calm forgetfulness about us, of which the human mind is, by its structure, peculiarly susceptible. My own mind is. You know, like we have anxiety. Like that is true. You know, when we talk about the gloom and black melancholy that we all experience, like we have depression, we have anxiety about the future. But I feel like for most people, there's a kind of parallel emotional track that runs with that anxiety, which is a sort of nearsightedness. I always get nearsightedness and farsightedness mixed up. But the one where you only see near, you can't see far. I feel like we, we all kind of have that, a kind of myopia, where it's, it, it, we, we can't plan too far in the future. We can't think too far in the future. We can't project ourselves into likely outcomes or scenarios. Most of us, I can't. And so we sort of, you know, we have blinders on most of the time. Or, you know, it's like when you're walking through the woods, as I was earlier today, and rather than looking out at the vista if you, or the, the, uh, the variety of uh, biology assembled before you, you look just sort of look down at your feet so you don't trip. But that's not the best way to enjoy a walk in the woods. We all know that. But too many of us, all of us, most of us, pick, take your pick of which quantity of us, spend most of our lives looking down at our feet. And in a way, it's good. You know, in a way that is a probably a pretty good survival mechanism. Because if we were to see the fullness of the future in front of us, and its uh, variety, meaning like the options arrayed before us, perhaps life itself would become intolerable. We would be stuck at every fork of the road. We wouldn't know which way to go because we would see all of the choices arrayed before us rather than just, oh, I think I'll go here. I'm looking down at the ground and there's not a, there's no stone here. So I'll just step there. I'll step there. You know what I mean? I don't know if I'm making any sense. As I said, it's a gloomy day here in the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library. And I am a bit sleepy, um, gloomy, not particularly melancholic, not really, no, but a little bit sleepy. It is my nap time. Um, I have exhausted myself packing up three or four boxes as I get ready to depart as I get ready to put one step on uh, my own rocky path and so we'll leave it there we will pick it up next week on another uh, uh, meandering episode of Obscure but until then I wish you adieu Obscure Season 2 Frankenstein is produced by Robin Lynn, Mary Shimkin, Jennifer Brennan, and myself. It is generally recorded in the wilds of Connecticut with original theme music by Craig Wedren. If you would like to support this podcast, please go to patreon.com slash Michael Ian Black, where not only will you be receiving every single episode of Obscure Season 2 Frankenstein way before the general public hears them, but you'll also get bonus episodes, uh, writings, musings, jokes aplenty, and if you sign up to our highest tier, you get to join the semi-regular book club, which we hold every now and again. It's patreon.com slash Michael Ian Black.